You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brandt. And this episode, we're talking about SST28, The Minutemen, Double Nickels on the Dime. And we just finished talking about Husker Du's double LP that was released on the same day in 1984. And so we'll likely be talking about that one too. Again, very hard to talk about either album without mentioning the other. I was super pumped to talk about Zen Arcade, but... Double Nickels is on a different level for me personally, and uh, I'm just really looking forward to getting into this. And again, we've got another special guest, Brent. So we've got Michael T. Fournier, and he literally wrote the book on Double Nickels on the Dime. And it's a great book. There are so many amazing anecdotes about uh, the songwriting process, who wrote the lyrics, because they brought in outside lyricists or... George Hurley wrote a lot of the lyrics. It's just, it's, I could read a book like this on just about every album I own and not get bored. Me too. And here's the thing. I've read uh, several of the 33 and a third series. Yep. This, this is by a mile my favorite because of the way it's written. Like I've mentioned before, you know, I'm a big fan of the replacements replacements are like probably in my top five you know and they have been for over 25 years and they probably will be forever and i bought uh the 33 and a third on the let it be record which was also released in 1984 i mean it's an okay book but i really wanted that to be an excellent book on the let it be record but i but i made the mistake of reading it after michael's book yeah, some are, I've got about 20 or 30 of these. Some are good, some are crap. Like there's a Black Sabbath Master of Reality one that's just terrible. But there's some other really good ones too. And some other, a couple of SST related ones, Sonic Youth Daydream Nation, which I haven't read for a while, but I remember really liking it. I know that album didn't come out on SST, but of course Sonic Youth was. And I think the only other SST related uh, album is Dinosaur Jr., You're Living All Over Me. I can't remember if I liked it or not, but this one for sure is one of the best ones. Yeah. So really looking for, and really appreciate Michael taking the time to get some firsthand knowledge like that is incredible. Well, now, he, he wanted to do it, you know, because he loves the album and loves talking about it. And that's a true music fan. You know, that's why you were you and I are doing this. If we weren't recording this, we would be doing it anyways. <laughs> so this is what you and I do when we get together, you know? No doubt. I got a, I got a quick spiel before we get into our first history lesson, though, but it's related to Double Nickels, okay. and it's on the, top, on the topic of books. Um, obviously, Michael's book is an insane resource and awesome. We've also talked about Craig Ibarra's book, A Wailing of a Town, which everyone should order, and everyone should order a bunch of stuff from Water Under the Bridge Records and N Freeway was it, is it N Freeway Press? I think so, yeah. Yeah, N Freeway Press. Like there's just awesome stuff there. If you like any of this stuff that we talk about on the podcast. Have you ever heard of the book Double Nickels Forever? No. A tribute a tribute to Double Nickels on the Dime and the Minutemen. And it is a book where fifty nine artists translate the songs of Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen. And they like basically... Like into artwork? Yeah. Oh. And and comic strips. And I, I bought it on a whim. I was kind of like, 
yeah, it's probably pretty lame, but it was cheap enough. And yep. I'm going to lend you this. And I want you to read this while listening to Double Nickels. All right. Go song by song. And um, some of the comic strips, they kind of miss the mark. Some of it, it is uncanny. Sometimes, in some of them are like pretty abstract. Some of them are like collage. Some of them are stick drawings, almost like, almost very kind of D Boone esque. Some of the artists' renditions of D Boone and Mike Watt and George Hurley, they really capture it, and um, it's crazy. So I don't know. I don't want to force it on you, but you're welcome to borrow that one. No, it sounds really cool. It's on a the uh, the publishing company is called Leaf and Signal. I don't know. I never really looked into whether they put out other stuff. Now that I mention, I'm going to check that out. Anyways, um, that's my quick spiel. Yeah, let's go to Pedro. History lesson, part one. Double Nickels on the Dime is like Zen Arcade in that it is a very, very well-documented record. There's not much out there that, you know, you and I anyways haven't read before, but we got to hit the high notes, of course, when we go through this. One thing, though, to keep in mind about Double Nickels on the Dime, though, is just when you're talking about this record, keep in mind that they it has over... 40 songs, like 45 songs on four sides of wax. And it is a massive outpouring of creativity. And it's very, very deliberate, as we'll get into. Yeah, I wrote down a quote that I really liked um, from our interview with Abe Gibson that we did on the Blasting Concept episode. And I mean, this is a sentiment you hear again and again when you hear people talk about this album. But he says in that interview that... Double Nickels on the Dime is one of the most amazing statements of creativity ever. Yeah, and Nels Klein, there's a quote from Nels Klein in A Wailing of a Town that basically says the same thing too. And that's how, like, everyone, when you get into Double Nickels and you fully appreciate it, you take the time to go from start to finish, and you and then you have to do it again. Um, you're just gobsmacked, and that's why there's so many people who have a very similar sentiment on it. They basically started writing this record after they got back from a tour with Flag in Europe. And uh, they hit the studio in 1983, with, uh, in November of 83, with Ethan James at Radio Tokyo. And so we, we mentioned this in uh, the Zen Arcade podcast, but this record sounds a lot different. It doesn't sound like a spot record. Ethan James kind of had a, a, um, a different aesthetic when he recorded it. You can hear everything really well on Zen Arcade. You can hear everything really well, but just differently on this record. It sounds very live to my ears when I hear it. Yeah, that, a lot of that has to do with, say, guitar tones, for example. I mean, I don't think oh, yeah. D. Boone used any effects. In fact, I know he didn't because I remember reading a quote from Watt where he's talking about, uh, this is in Michael's book, about on the number one hit song, I think it was. He says... Uh, D. Boone's guitar solo, He for that solo he used a hollow body Gibson uh, with a cord soldered right into it and a tube screamer 909. And that was like, that was strictly for studio overdubs. He didn't use any effects live. So he's plugged straight into his amp. So I mean, there's a right there, there's a huge difference between the Bob Mould wall of sound and on this album, you can really hear all the instruments really well because they give each other so much space. Definitely. So they record an album's worth of material. Then they hear about those Hooskers 
who are, rec- are recording a double album. And uh, Watt hears about this, and they went to Joe Carducci and they said, "Give us more time. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do this too." And Carducci gave them more time. They now have the mandate to go and record, or not record, but like write and record another album's worth of material. So they go and write like 20 more songs in two weeks. Georgie's pissed. You know, he doesn't want to go back and do all of this just just to kind of, um, you know, to, to counter what the Husker Du guys are doing. But they go and there's so much musical creativity they couldn't even keep up with words. You were mentioning that they had a number of contributors and certainly Michael's book goes through that in a lot of detail um, but they were getting words from Joe Biza's cousin, or sorry, uh, Jack Brewer's cousin, yep. Joe Brewer, Joe Carducci, Henry Rollins, Chuck Dukowski. They even used, like, a Watt used um, a note from his landlady on that song, Take 5D. Yeah, he talks about that in the uh, in our Punchline episode. Yep. He, me- he mentions about how, like, D. Boone was saying, you know, your lyrics are too out there. They're too spacey because he was very loosely kind of um, some of his words were influenced or inspired by James Joyce's book, uh, Ulysses. And, you know, they were just out there. And D. Boone is like, they're just, just too out there. I don't know what your what your words mean is like, well, OK, here here's some a note from my landlady. You can't get any more real than that. <laughs> Ryan, I couldn't find a list of which songs came from the first session and which one's from the second. And you definitely can't tell by the recording. It all sounds the same, considering, you know, they definitely would have striked the gear and had to re-mic everything. But what I did read was they recorded the second batch in April of 84. So very close to the release date, because this came out in June of 84. Here's the thing about, you, you got into this with Paul in the previous podcast about no one knowing like when this was actually released. I had always thought it was July. When I'm reading A Wailing of a Town, it says this album was released in August of 84. Hmm. So who the hell knows? But they were apparent. Apparently, though, I mean, they held back the Zen Arcade record for what, like nine months? Yeah. Waiting for Double Nickels to be ready. But yeah, I mean, I, I can't tell which is which. They recorded the whole thing for like 1200 bucks, though, over six days total, about 36 to 40 hours. I also and read somewhere that they had two dozen songs for the second session, so I guess that would be about double the length, really. Yeah, well, 45 songs. Ethan James mixed it in one night. Hurley, of course, like he's, he's pretty well known for his comment, like remembering 45 songs is just crazy. What they also did, too, from inspiration... Uh, taking from Zen Arcade is they heard that it was going to be a a concept album. And so they kind of went with two concepts for Double Nickels on the Dime. They each got a side and the inspiration there, the concept was kind of going with uh, the Pink Floyd album, Amagama, mm-hmm. where they all got a side and uh, they were Pink Floyd fans. The other, and these are very loose themes, I guess you could say. The other theme was like, um, a driving or a car theme. What's that guy, the Red Rocker, Sammy Hagar? He had that song, I Can't Drive 55. And that's what Double Nickels is. It's driving 55. And on the dime, 
is um, the uh, the freeway exit to Pedro and uh, the ten, I think it's called. Yeah. So they they're saying, okay, well, you're so crazy, Sammy Hagar, you can't drive fifty five. We're gonna drive fifty five, but we're gonna do it with crazy music. We're gonna blow your mind, driving the speed limit, but with crazy music. And Mike Watt kind of has, he explains that in the movie We Jam Econo, which is a great, great scene. Yeah, and I they think also, in Michael's book, if I'm remembering, is there not, does he not describe, like, I think he interviews, is it Dirk Vandenberg, who uh, plays on the album, but also shot the cover about yep. dr- drive, like, it took them, like, two or three passes? Well, it took a couple of days, To actually. get the shot right? Yeah, Dirk is uh, quoted in A Wailing of a Town as well. Took him a couple of days. He was cramped in the back of Watt's VW to get it perfect so that you could see Watt's eyes in the rearview mirror. The needle is pinned right on 55, and you could see the San Pedro exit sign there. When they were cropping the photo for the album cover, though, they kind of cut off the O in the San Pedro. Right. But... It's a just like Zen Arcade. It's a incredibly iconic photo. Yeah, it's an amazing photo. Apparently, it was fo- Joe Carducci's idea to add the car jams. Oh yeah, for each out for each side. Well, you know what? I was going to get into that, but we might as well right now. I think Michael, when he was when I read his book, I seem to recall he he got to know this record first when it was on cassette, and they had kind of a different mix or. Um, I'm not even sure they included all of the car sounds on the cassette. But yeah. They definitely, well, I can definitely, I can speak to that because I had a similar experience. I I got to know it on CD. Yeah. In fact, I'm staring yeah. at it right now. I've never owned it on vinyl. I'm sorry to say, it's a shame. But I mean, I've seen <laughs> I've seen it on vinyl. Like I'm sure it's also still available through SST. I've seen it in stores, and I mean, I've just never bought it because I I've listened to it a zillion times and. It's not something I go back to a ton, but I should because I listen to it a lot for this podcast. And man, it's such a such a great album. It's amazing. There is, and we'll get to you know how they picked the sides, the songs for the sides. But there's no chaff on this record in my mind. But it's interesting when you talk about the CD. Like I got to know this album on vinyl. This is one of those occasions where I will be a vinyl snob. You can get to know this record on CD. But you must, at some point in your life, get to know it on vinyl because the vinyl has got all the songs. Yeah, and it's, it's got all the car jams too. No, you it's you got- totally do, Ryan. Uh, I have to agree with you. Like, I bought this a long time ago on CD in the early '90s, pre-internet, and I had no idea. I mean, as you mentioned, it starts with D's car jam, but that's it, and the tracks are just listed one through forty-three. There's no it doesn't say anything on the back about about the you know side watt side d side george and side chaff so i had no idea about the concept none and it's missing and, three songs too yeah the the cd is missing um well sorry different versions of the cd to get ultra nerdy on you are missing different songs yeah i the, apparently uh, have the <laughs> the original mix which is good cuz watt says the he Mine's from 89. Apparently there was about 500 pressed in 87 where he and Vetus Matari remastered or like remixed it for CD. And Watt says it sounds like shit. Yeah. And so the 87 version omitted Don't Look Now, the the Credence song, Mr. Robot's 
Holy Orders, uh, the Van Halen song, Ain't Talking About Love, one of the best covers of all time, by the way, because they do like 45 seconds of the song. Yep. And then uh, also missing Steely Dan's Dr. Wu and Little Man with a Gun in His Hand, which was um, we've, we've seen before. The 89 version brings back Don't Look Now and Dr. Wu. I have it on CD, too. There was a point in time where I was getting rid of my vinyl and uh, I was like buying, rebuying stuff on CD. This has got to be the 90s or something like that. I hung on to double nickels, thankfully, because but I must admit, I have not listened to it on vinyl for at least a couple of years, maybe even something like five years. I've only just listened to it mostly like on my iPod to and from work or something like that, which is the CD version. And it was awesome to put the vinyl down and look at the labels and hear all the songs and hear all the breaks. You got to get this one on vinyl. That's yeah. all I got to say. Oh, I <laughs> believe me, as I was re-listening to it, that was a thought I had is like the next time I see it, I'm buying it on vinyl for sure. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's one of those rare moments where you got to be a vinyl snob and it's legit on this one. Yeah. So they picked the songs though. Uh, they each got to pick a side. They did it like a, um, a sports draft. Uh, they drew, I think they drew straws or something, and George, George won, and so he got to pick the first song for his side, and he picked, like, kind of a goof off song. Well, he picked his solo track, which he automatically would have gotten. <laughs> <laughs> I hope yeah. he picked. Uh, yeah, I think it's "You Need Glory," right? Yeah. 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 And uh, and so, anyways, they they went in order and picked their songs, and then the leftover songs went to side four, which is what we keep talking about the chaff side you know that's the leftover side but again like this record hangs together start to finish there's no chaff for me anyways yeah like i don't know for me like listening to this on cd i have a short attention span <laughs> so i know you know i usually stopped around jesus and tequila to be honest with you like which is probably the start of the chaff side i'm speculating i i I'm sure I read it in the book, like the actual track listing on vinyl, but Yeah, Jesus and Tequila is is the second song on the fourth side. Yeah. Like not you know, I know those songs. I know the songs, all of them, but more often than not, I would probably stop listening to it by that point. For for me, up until history lesson part two is kind of because that's how the songs are laid out on the back of this, that's like kind of the side one and side two for me. Yeah, no, I get it. I totally get it. Again, I'm I'm probably just because I had the excuse to re-listen to this so many times. I'm probably being a bit snobby on it, but you can definitely make make your way all the way through all four sides on this, and it hangs together. Should we go to the interview with Michael? Oh wait, I have one quote. I got to give you a double nickels quote because again, we mentioned this on Zen Arcade. You know, the My War album is is not just your go-to. Black Flag album. It's one of your go-to albums. Double Nickels has always been one of my go-to records as well. Um, it's up there with You're Living All Over Me, Flip Your Wig. Um, it's just one of those records for me. And so I got this quote, though, that I think validates, you know, forget all the hype and listen to this quote. So Richard Bonney, uh, one of the Minutemen's, I think he's he's a roadie. And he has a quote in A Wailing of a Town. 
and he's talking about how Spin, that uh, the magazine, was yep. asking Joe Strummer, who's the best punk band ever? And he said, well, the Ramones. And then he said, quote, oh, yeah, and the Minutemen. Big ups to the Minutemen, end quote. Wow, that says it all right there. I mean, they, man, they do not get the respect they deserve for yeah, they, changing uh, minds, like opinions, in the punk scene. There's a quote in Michael's book where he says, after uh, Double Nickels on the Dime and Husker Du, or sorry, after Husker Du and the Minutemen released their respective double albums, many punk bands would begin to ignore the stylistic limitations of the punk scene. They really yeah, changed okay. things. They did. And, and honestly, like, some for the better, some for the worse, but you just, you can't be, you know, the same old punk after these records in 84 came out you just can't yeah like and and meat puppets are part of that too i'm gonna give another plug for the replacements too like 1984 just had so much that um that changed what happened what came like what was to come right it's amazing yeah. um well let's get into the interview and then um i'm excited to talk about some run grooves and the ballot result let's do that History Lesson, Part 2. All right, Michael, thanks for uh, agreeing to be on the podcast. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me. So you wrote this book, it seems like probably close to 10 years ago already. Is yeah, that... I was thinking about that today. I think that there's, in one of the descriptions of a song, I can't remember which one it is, there's a date stamp in there. I think I was writing it in 2006, and I remember that it came out on uh, through coincidence. It came out on Dee Boone's birthday, uh, which happened to be my 33 and a third birthday. Wow. April 1st, <laughs> 2007. So just happy coincidence that it happened like that. Very cool. Uh, in the book, you mentioned that you kind of decided to kind of get the ball rolling maybe on writing in general by reviewing your, your music library, writing reviews of your collection. <laughs> I think you say that yeah, it was your true. new your New Year's resolution in two thousand five. Do you do you know how many titles that would have been? Oh geez. Well I think uh I think every person with a record collection has regrets at some point. Um in probably nineteen ninety seven or thereabouts I was moving a lot. I had just moved to Boston and I was always moving apartments and I thought it would be a good idea to uh, put all my CDs into binders, right? So I threw away all these jewel boxes. And I had like 400 CDs and binders. And then the thing you find out, especially if you, you're friends with a bunch of bozos who like to drink, uh, like I am, is that taking those CDs in and out of the binder inevitably scratches stuff, right? So I yeah. had like 400 CDs in a binder, and then I had like another, uh, I don't know, 500 or so that were in jewel cases. I think if you go to alphabetical.blogspot.com, uh, there's statistics pretty much on the front page and uh, the exact list of CDs or the number of CDs that I have is up there. I don't remember what it is right now. Are the reviews up there that you did? Yeah, the, re the reviews are still up there. I, oh, I cool. think I've kept that active. Yeah. Um, there are some, like I was trying to be edgy, you know, and like there are some where uh, I would probably revise it. Like I, I was trying to get a reaction. So I said that, you know, damaged wasn't a good record because Henry couldn't sing. And that's, so bogus, but I was just trying to see if people were paying attention. Well, that'll that will get um, that will get a reaction. I've learned, 
<laughs> any uh, any any opinion on Black Flag will will get a reaction. Yeah, I I was coming at it from the standpoint that you know in my head was the first uh, Black Flag record I spent time with. So that's you know that's the one that I'm still saying is my favorite. Society's Tease is has one of the greatest Greg Ginn guitar solos in his entire oeuvre. So I'm I'm sticking with in my head, but I've come around on Damage. I've listened to it like. You know, another thousand times. I actually sang a bunch of songs off of Damaged in Worcester, Massachusetts at a Halloween show. Uh, I sang uh, What I See. So much fun. I was supposed to be studying for my GREs, and instead I was, like, <laughs> pretending to be Henry, like, <laughs> singing, like, with a, a comb in the mirror, you know, like, practicing my poses and stuff. Awesome. Yeah, for years I wanted to uh, to write, and I wanted to be a novelist, and I was... Uh, I was doing some music criticism here and there, but I wasn't as regimented as I should have been. I wasn't, you know, logging the hours or the miles. Or so in 2005, I reviewed three CDs a day, five days a week, until I finished my collection. And it's cool because, like, looking back on it, it's also kind of a diary of, of stuff that's happening in my life at that point. Like, there's a tumultuous breakup in there. I remember listening to the Pet Shop Boys in a rented SUV driving up to a buddy's wedding, you know, and I was going to go to a wedding uh, with this other person to work out. So there's, there's stuff in there like that. It's, it's, uh, it's this weird diary through music. <laughs> and then uh, sort of the momentum of that project, you know, carried me to where I am. And I found the 33 and third series at the same time uh, that I was doing that project. Okay. And I wound up pitching them and it worked out. Yeah. Well, it definitely worked out. It's, it's an incredibly detailed book, and you end up in Mike Watts' van touring Pedro. How did that happen? <laughs> uh, well, I guess we have to uh, we have to back up a little bit to Wee Jamie Connor. That's totally what happened. Wee Jamie Connor was this revelation when it came out because um, that was like right around two thousand five, two thousand six, and if YouTube existed at that point, it was still in its nascent stage. Um, there wasn't a lot of footage of the Minutemen to be seen. There was, do you know about this old SST VHS tape that came out? You know, the tour? Yes. I managed to get a copy of that in Philadelphia in 1993. Uh, I watched it at a friend's house. And I think that was the only time I ever saw footage of them prior to that movie. And, you know, prior to We Jamie Cono coming out, I would meet a Minuteman person here or there. You know, I'd meet a Firehose person here and there. But I'd never been in a room with Minutemen fans before. So everybody showed up with their war stories and their T-shirts. There's this, like, 25-foot-high D. Boone jumping around stage, you know, being projected up there. And it was just fantastic. And I met Keith Sheeran at that. He just died last January or last December of a brain tumor. Total sweetheart of a guy. And I told him that I was interested in doing the book. And he said, well, if you need anything, get in touch with me. And so then I emailed him, asked him to set me up with Watt. He did. And then Watt said, yeah, come to San Pedro and we can hang out. So I, uh, I flew to San Pedro. My friend Kimi Balmolero, who's an actress now on Hawaii Five-0, and her husband, John LeBlanc, who I used to go to Boy Scout camp with, drove me from Los Angeles to San Pedro. And I hung out with Watt for the day. And it was like being in the film. He drove me around. He, you know, he points to the teen post where the first show was. He took me to get a sandwich, uh, and we just went through all of the songs. That was the pitch that I did to the 33 and a third series, was that there was obviously interest in the Minutemen, but the film 
focused more on the narrative about the band than on the music itself. You know, it, it's obvious to anyone who listens to Double Nickels that there's this whole whole system of in-jokes happening, right? There's this whole scaffolding for what they're doing that just hadn't been explained before. Yeah. And uh, so I asked Watt about all the songs and the record, and he told me all this stuff. And uh, well, he, that was, he that, sure that was did. <laughs> Yeah, the transcript is up on the Hoot page. Like, it's funny because if you look at the transcript of the interview that I do with him, like, it's four full screens of text. And then there's, like, me trying to get a word in edgewise. I'm like, um, was that 1983? And then it's five more screens of text. He was spieling. He was, yeah, you guys know, right? You guys talk to him. Uh, He spiels. Yeah, there's so many great anecdotes in your book about the songwriting process or the meaning behind the lyrics. Uh, do you have any favorites? I think the uh, the favorite thing for me is that those guys are totally outside of the sports realm, right? But they still wind up having a fantasy football draft inside of their <laughs> band. Um, yeah. They have, they have a first batch of songs written, and then they uh, Husker Du comes to town, and Husker Du is like, "Well, we have a double concept album," and Watts feeling a little bit competitive so he's like well we have a double double concept album (laughs) and they write a batch of songs they don't know how to put them together and so they all sit down and they have a fantasy draft where each guy picks songs until a side of the record is full with the understanding that the uh, instrumental that each guy writes is automatically going to be on the other uh, on their side right right whatever's left over is going to go on side chaff which is side four George Hurley gets the first pick and he picks his own instrumental, you know, like a song that he's going to get anyway. It's like you get the first pick in your fantasy football draft and you pick a kicker. um, So that cracks me up. That's one of my favorite things about it. You don't really hear of it, you know, in the same way you hear Zen Arcade being typically called a concept album. Is that something, do you think the band considered it? Or is that like, I don't, I don't hear it called a concept album too much. Yeah, I guess I don't hear it. Uh, I don't hear it referred to like that too often either. Obviously, you know, Zen Arcade gets a lot of press as being a concept album. Uh, you know, the concept is like, oh, we're gonna. The, one of the concepts in the double concept album, right, is that, oh, we're gonna drive around in our cars, which you know maybe it's not a great concept, you know. But if you know if the author says it's a concept, it's a concept, and they do. The other one is that those guys are big Pink Floyd fans, right? And during the Sid Barrett era of Pink Floyd, I think that's what it was. There's uh, there's Amagama, mm-hmm. and those guys all play their own compositions on that album. So that's one of the other conceptual frameworks. That's why each guy has a a song on their side that's their instrumental. Um, like on D Boone's, it's uh, cohesion. And I should mention that when my wife and I got married, uh, my wife walked down the aisle to Cohesion. Oh, wow. Cool, you know, yeah. How did you get into the Minutemen and punk rock in general? Were they an early band for you, or did they come later? Uh, yeah, I think they were early. It was uh, the first record, the first punk record I heard was Nevermind the Bollocks. And that's because I, uh, I was living in New Hampshire. I'm an only child. I was skateboarding a lot. So I was buying a lot of magazines. To, you know, to try and figure out how to do this because, uh, you know, like one guy would have a VHS tape of some uh, skate video and everybody would watch that. There wasn't a lot of information at the time because it was like the late 80s. 
every skater had a, a Sex Pistols shirt or there was an ad for one of their records or one of their T-shirts in every issue, so I bought it. And, um, like, my mom took me downtown because she had to go shopping, and then we came home so that my mom could change and shower, and then we were going to go to church, right? So I had time to listen to one song, and if you know that Sex Pistols record, obviously, the first one is Holidays in the Sun, right? So, like, this angry guy who can't sing is totally shouting. And all throughout church, like, this is the most blasphemous thing, right? Like, I'm sitting (laughs) through church, not paying attention, trying to figure out what Johnny Rotten's so mad about and why he's singing about a concentration camp. (laughs) Uh, So at at that point, I was, like, totally hooked. Um, I kept watching skate videos. And uh, in one of those Santa Cruz videos, the ones where, the one where Jason Jesse is in jail, uh, I think it's, Streets of Fire, right? There's Wheels of Fire and Streets of Fire. Yeah. Um, Jason Jesse is skating a ramp, and Paranoid Time is the background. Yeah. Right. And when I heard that, like that was unlike any of the punk that I'd heard before. It was like it was funny. You know, these guys obviously had a sense of humor because you know the closest scene to New Hampshire was Boston, and uh, Boston like has a, a reputation which is sometimes deserved of being kind of like a tough guy town. So as like a kid who had big glasses and braces and acne, like I was too scared to go see Wrecking Crew or Slapshot or something like that. Right. Um, they're great bands, but I was just terrified of that stuff, you know, and the Minutemen just had more of a vibe. So then I started seeking them out. There was one record store in Punk in New Hampshire that sold uh, SST stuff, it was called French's. It was right across the street from the comic book store. So the day I took the SATs for the second and final time, uh, I went to the record store afterwards and Double Nichols was there. You know, I bought that on tape. The tape had that little thing inside where it said, you know, what, you think we can fit all the song titles on this cassette tape? Look at the, <laughs> look at the notes, you know? Yeah. And so I just listened mostly to sides one and two for like the first couple of years. And then eventually, I knew that well enough, so I flipped the tape over. From there, I got into Firehose, got into Watts, solo stuff. Uh, so that's how I found out about it. So fast forward to now, and you you teach, do you still teach the, uh, a history class on uh, punk rock music in a university? Oh, man, that was, I wish I did. No, that was the job of a lifetime. Um, Tufts in Boston has a thing called the Experimental Program, and you can... Uh, you can pitch a class to them. And if they think that you have a clue, you know, if they think that you are going to be able to do a good job, then they'll give you the class. And that's right when podcasting was happening. Uh, like that Tufts punk rock class that I used to teach happened at about the same time as the pitch. Okay. Right? I submitted the pitch around the same time. So I podcasted a bunch of uh, music stuff for students to listen to, and I assigned some, some reading through texts as well. And uh, because I got that class, I started to get a little bit of press, and because I started to get a little bit of press, I was able to get some people to come to my class. So, um, like, Clint Conley from Mission of Burma came to my class. Oh, wow. Uh, Steve and Adam from Cave In came in. Clint is a total sweetheart. Like, students of mine went to see the Mission of Burma documentary, and he was sitting right in front of them. And uh, they're like, hey, you know that like we just learned about your band in our class? And he's like, well, there's a there's a class? <laughs> and so my students invited Clint to come in. And he 
did. Well, I got Ian Mackay to come in, so I got to spend the day with Ian Mackay, and he's the greatest, you know, Sir Ian Mackay. Yeah. He's fantastic. He came as, in as, like, a presenter, or...? Yeah, he came in and hung out, and he did the uh, the question and answer thing, where you ask him questions and he explains stuff. Wow! Uh, so, and it happened that I was teaching Fugazi that day. You know, I would have changed it, but it, yeah. you know, it happened that it lined up. So I didn't tell the students he was coming ahead of time, and I was like, "Hey, everybody, Ian McKay's here." And everyone's like, <laughs> "Oh boy!" <laughs> but uh, I moved to. University of Maine in uh, 2008 because I wrote this Minutemen book and because I taught this punk rock class, I got accepted for grad studies up at University of Maine, you know, and then because of that, I landed the teaching jobs that I have now. I teach composition, I teach film studies, I teach literature. So all of that started because of this Minutemen book, you know, so I owe it all to, to what? Really, yeah. I want and keep cheering for hooking me up. That's how I landed where I am today, because of all that. Did I read right that there was a, an entire class devoted to the Minutemen as well? Yeah, yeah, there was. There was a Minutemen class. I have friends in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, who are in a band called Pillow Man, and they, uh, they used to physically correspond with the Minutemen that they, that they pretended to be or played in their Minutemen cover band. So I would have them come in uh, once, like, once Watt talked to my class through speakerphone. Yeah, so I did that Minutemen class, had a live band play. So much fun. As I mentioned, for people that haven't read the book, it's really a, a real deep dive behind the curtain, I guess, for, like, as far as the meaning behind the lyrics, which I love, and I assume most people do. Does it enhance... The album for you, like, do you have any regrets about losing the mystique at all? Uh, that's a good question. No one's ever asked me that before. Um, no, I don't think so. I think that for me, like, I always knew that there was something. And, you know, like, if you're, if you're, uh, let, me, let me switch to the sports analogy here. When the Red Sox won the series in 2004, for the first time in 86 years, everybody was worried that, like, the luster was going to wear off and no one was going to watch baseball. You know, I've read a bunch of think pieces this week about the Philadelphia Eagles and their fan base. Like, are they ever going to be the same? And it wasn't anything like that for me. It just like, it made me appreciate the record even more knowing that, you know, for example, like what was uh, echoing this specific chapter of Ulysses that James Joyce wrote, which was thinking about the development of human language Putting that in a two-and-a-half-minute song makes their music even crazier than it was. You know, yeah. it's like the, the stories behind the songs are so great. Yeah, they really are. Do you have any updates to the book? Like you wrote, like we said, we, you wrote this probably close to 10 years ago, if, if not more. Any updates, any, any uh, new stories that you've come across? I think uh, in, the, in the way of regret, it's funny because I had never written a book before this, and... When I signed my contract, they said, "Oh, you can you can pick any of these like projected time slots. You know, it, I could have anywhere between six months and two years to complete this book." So at first, I was like, "Oh, I should do six months. I should just get it done, get it out of the way." But then I was like, "No, no, no. I've never written a book before. I'm going to give myself way more time. I'm going to write it in nine months instead. I wish I had given myself a little bit longer uh, <laughs> in, in terms of time." Because I could have been more thorough with uh, with the uh, 
interviews that I did and the research that I did. I, uh, I reached out to George, and I didn't hear back from him. I wish that I had spoken to George. The book is like, in retrospect, the book is like really white and really male. So I would, in retrospect, I would sort of broaden the, the scope of the interviews. Um, in terms of updates, I haven't really heard many stories, but I've, but I've met some of the, the players in the book since then. Um, since the Minutemen book came out, I've written two novels. They both came out on Three Rooms Press, and I've gotten to meet some of the, the folks in San Pedro. A woman named Lori Steelink has a gallery in San Pedro that's called Cornelius Projects. So I, uh, I did a reading there, I think it was in 2015, and I met uh, Linda Kite there, right? Linda Kite, yep. veteran, uh, San Pedro seamster. She does merch for the Meat Puppets now, so we had dinner in, uh, in May when the Meat Puppets and Watt played in Boston. I met Dirk Vandenberg, who took photos for the album cover. Right. I met Craig Ibarra. You, you guys have mentioned Craig a couple times. Uh, Craig wrote that book, Wailing of a Town, which is really good. Yeah, it's great. So, yeah. So those aren't updates per se, but it's nice that I've had the opportunity to meet all these folks and have a chance to talk to them and hang out with them. Yeah, I know you mentioned your two books, uh, Hidden Wheel and Swing State. Is that right? That is right. Yep. Yeah. Now, Abe Gibson was telling me that a little bit about um, your fictional career, and he told me you uh, brought one of the fictional bands from one of your books to life and recorded an EP with them. Can you can you talk about that? <laughs> I can, yeah. In uh, Hidden Wheel came out in 2011, and that was on uh, Three Rooms Press, right? This uh, small press out of New York City. And the way that I met the publishers, Peter and Kathy, is that they were big Minutemen fans. So they asked me to come to New York for the 25th anniversary of Double Nickels. So I did, uh, I did a little thing about the book. Watt was on the bill. Richard Hell was on the bill. I got my friend's pillow man, who I mentioned, on the same bill. And then because I was friends with Peter and Kathy, I, I gave them the manuscript when I was finished with it. That was my uh, master's thesis at UMaine. And they wound up publishing that and Swing State. Uh, in Hidden Wheel, there's a uh, there's a band called Dead Trend, and um, the band, like the history of the band, is sort of hinted at throughout the uh, the book, where they start off as a punk band in 1987, they become uh, like a Krishna rap metal band by the end, and they break up, and then they get back together and they uh, and they play reunion shows, and there's only one member you know there's only one original member in the reunion so that's you know that's kind of a nod to sst you know that's a nod to sst and to discord bands that are always breaking up and reforming uh so when it came time to publicize that book i thought it would be funny if i would uh write a bunch of songs right because when i was writing the book i would drive my wife crazy because i was like walking around the house like singing these like stupid like three chord hardcore songs so <laughs> i I can play enough guitar so that I can, you know, I can play whatever your favorite Ramon song is. So I wrote seven songs, and then uh, up at University of Maine, I was friends with these guys in a band called Great Western Plain. I was friends with, uh, I am friends with uh, Mike Powers and Tim Berrigan, and they were the band. I was the drummer, so they were the guitarist and bassist. And I used to work with this guy named Jay Grant at WNED, which is University of Maine's radio station. 
So Jay, uh, Jay became the singer, even though he never sang before. So we, uh, we recorded the Bad Policy EP. Uh, we actually got a chance to open for, uh, for Mike Watt because um, Watt put out a book called On and Off Bass on Three Rooms Press, uh, who also put out my book. So we, uh, we opened for Hellride East, which was um, Watt playing with, Jay Maskus and with Murph with a series of singers. So like Kurt Vile and Sharon Van Etten and Thurston Moore all sang that night. Wow. And that was like our 10th show. You know, we played maybe 15 shows and we got to do that. So that was like <laughs> this life changing night for me. Totally. Uh, yeah. We have a 23 song LP, which is up on Bandcamp. And uh, we released a cover of the New Order song, Age of Consent. And uh, in the next like, month or so maybe by the time this podcast is up the computers for seniors lp will be up or ep will be up we have seven new songs we recorded last year that's cool does it go through the his through the history of the fictional band like are you doing uh like the rap music hip-hop stuff that you mentioned as well or oh god no like no, no one needs <laughs> you know no one needs to hear any like christian rap metal. <laughs> uh we were for a while we were working through the conceit so we would always be 25 years in the past. But to sort of get around that or through that, Dead Trend broke up, and now we've reunited in 2018. So that's how we do it now. That's awesome. All the songs were about 25 years ago, so they're all like about Reagan and Oliver North and Grenada and stuff like that. Of course. Yep. 80s hardcore, hey? Yep, that's right. I have a couple of geek questions for you to see if you see if you know the answers to these questions. So SST did a single-sided LP of Double Nickels to use as a promo. Um, do you have any idea what songs were on it and how many were pressed? Uh, that's the Wheel of Fortune record, right? Okay, I don't know. Yeah, is that, is that, that what was, it was uh, called? I believe so, yeah. Because um, the cost of mailing it, printing and mailing out uh, double LPs to all the radio stations was prohibitive. So that comes up on eBay every every now and again. I, I want to say, I don't know exactly how many songs there were, probably like between 12 and 16. There's like all these glyphs on the cover of that record. Um, I've seen Carducci mention that in the past, but I've never gotten my hands on that before. Do you know when the album was actually released? It seems like nobody knows when this and Zen Arcade, like nobody has a date. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, it was the. I know that those two were released on the same day. I know that Rolling Stone uh, did a double review, uh, talking about how they were the future of the American underground. Uh, I don't know what the exact day was, though. I don't know the release date. Yeah, I don't know if anybody does. <laughs> I was talking to Paul Hillkoff about Zen Arcade, and he has no idea when it was released. I'm not sure if you've been on Paul's website, but it's it's quite an exhaustive. Uh, uh, look back at at uh, Husker Du's career, and he doesn't know <laughs> when that album came out. So I I have a feeling if he doesn't know, nobody does. That's the page with all the the show dates and everything. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that page before. Um, yeah, no, if you're right, if that guy doesn't know, then like it's lost to the sands of time. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about Double Double Nickels on the Dime? Uh, continues to be my favorite record, even though I listen to it. Uh, you know, hundreds of times prepping the book. It's uh, it's still this monster of an album. It's it's uh, still amazing to me how seamless all of their ambition 
goes together. You know, they're such an ambitious band, and they're just not afraid to fall on their face or try things and not succeed. But everything to me, everything to these ears, is uh, really successful and still sounds like singular. You know, it's just like it's not a yeah. dated album. You know, put that like this week the um, you know Elon Musk sent up his rocket with the uh, with the car on the top like. Put double nickels in there and send it to space. Man. Aliens need to listen to that record. And humans too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Do you have a favorite track? I knew you were going to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it. it's tough. It is. It's so hard. I mean, the the first pick is, uh, obviously, it's History Lesson Part 2. I've heard that song yeah. so many times, though, that, like, that I'm inclined to pick something else. Because I've heard that one more than anything else on there. I'm trying to think what else. You Vietnam, can, you can really relate to that song, though. Yeah, indeed. It's yeah. it's so relatable. It's like, you know, it's all there, you know. And especially, yeah. you know, for me, like, those guys were the, you know, in addition to being this really important punk rock band, like, all of the things that have happened to me happened to me because of them, because of doing this book. So it's super relatable. It's Expected I'm Gone has that awesome uh, drum beat. You know, it's got that awesome drum, which gets looped uh, a lot of times. I love that one. Vietnam is awesome. I don't know. It's, it's so hard to pick just one. Uh, I'm sure every song on this album has been your favorite at one point or another. It's that good. So. <laughs> yeah, I go through phases where I'm like, oh, this is the one. And then the next song comes on. Then it's clearly the one after that. Yeah. If you're listening to another uh, Minutemen album, which one is it? Oh, uh, Buzz or How is the other one that I, yeah. that I go back to. I felt like a gringo is awesome. Uh, Cut is fantastic. You know, Cut is is there as one of my favorite like five Minutemen songs. Um, Elsewhere, like the anchor comes to mind immediately. You know, like he says in the movie, that's their opus. You know, it's like three minutes. I've gone through phases with all of those records. I'm a I'm a Firehose guy. Yeah, I totally love Firehose. Yeah, me too. The uh, the obvious totally underrated. Yeah, yeah, seriously, they just get swept under the rug. Uh, my wife continues yeah. to make fun of me because I have, like, six Firehose shirts. <laughs> you know, a package comes in the mail, and she's like, oh, is that another black Firehose shirt? And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they didn't put out, well, I guess uh, all the SSD stuff is fantastic. And then uh, the Totem Pole EP and um, Fly in the Flannel, you know, all that stuff is great. Yeah, we love Firehose, too. All right, well, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to us. It's it's greatly appreciated. Everybody needs to check out this book. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, Double Nickels on the Dime is available through Bloomsbury's 33 and a Third Series, uh, Hidden Wheel, Swing State, uh, through Three Rooms Press. Dead Trend is on Bandcamp. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, I've been digging your podcast. Can't wait till you... Thank you. Uh, I can't wait till it gets sort of past the the stuff that we already know into the really weird stuff that's going to be a lot of fun that's what we're looking forward to too so thanks a lot man really appreciate yeah, of it course. thank you all right yeah I, I mean i don't want to beat a dead horse here ryan but if anybody out there is a fan of this album uh you really need to pick up this book it's a truly is a companion piece to the album we could st- extend this podcast by an hour and just tell you know, read out all the cool little anecdotes about all the songs. Um, but it really is, it's an amazing deep dive into the album that everyone 
needs to check out. Yeah, it's awesome. It's just so awesome. And thanks to Michael for taking the time. I mean, uh, and same with Paul, too, in the Zen Arcade podcast. We've been really lucky to get a bunch of just really nice people who are willing to share their time with us, and we really appreciate it. We hope that when we come back and uh, beg you to be on the podcast again, you will be um, gracious all over again. Yeah, it's it's really a treat for us, for sure, because you know the whole reason we're doing this is because we're fans. So anytime that I get to learn a new little factoid or piece of information that I didn't know before, it makes doing the podcast all worthwhile for me. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about, we, we started talking about the artwork. We talked about the cover, very famous cover, very famous story there. On the back of the album, Dirk Vandenberg also took the photos of George in his VW bus. Yep. Make, doing a left turn signal. Rocking the, be... rock the McSqueeb haircut. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't be cooler. Yep. And here's the other thing, too, that I love is... is uh, picture of d boone in his car and it's got like this massive gouge yep in the uh the driver's side door oh yeah it looks like the shit mobile off of trailer park boys yeah it's yeah. uh just the ult the ultimate in econo i love it the gatefold inside is kind of a collage of it's a mix of kind of a collage of photos and raymond pettibone artwork the wailing of a town book goes into a lot of detail like Mike Watt goes through like where almost like every photo is from and and who's in the photo and I I, I can't go through and then that level of detail but it's it is kind of neat to look at them and so you can see like Watt he's rocking the plaid D is is rocking the paisley very cool and there's one photo in here I love where Mike Watt's puffing his cheeks out classic style oh yeah yeah interesting to see all of the different guitars right like watt's got at least he's got at least it looks like a one p bass maybe it's even a gnl he's got a a telly style p bass there and d has got a number of guitars he's got a dan electro in one he's got his telly just cool to see all that all the gear that they were jamming econo on the pettibone artwork as always does not disappoint some of it it's pretty is. hard to see on the on the CD version. It's hard to read the the captions. Well, it's um, I mean, it's 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 kind of the the typical Pettibone one-liners that just kind of blow your mind when they are put with the image, you know? Yep. Like the uh, the woman in the in the top left with it's kind of like a uh, kind of like a Frankenstein man and says nothing's wrong with creating life if it's this handsome you go over and it, it's kind of like and then there's one about elvis one with a priest i don't want a priest if i'm going to confess my sin my sins i want to see my son the baby in the jar it just says sex with joey who knows what that is and then it's got kind of the the new alliance uh type font in yep. there that they typed up, and and we have to mention before we get to the runout grooves here and ballot result, one of the most famous one-liners of all time, where Watt typed in "Take that, comma, Hooskers!" Yep. Exclamation point. Take that, Hooskers! And it was uh, obviously 
a friend a friendly rivalry a friendly challenge they were just challenging each other to um be prolific to make amazing art and they did so let me get to the runout grooves here i read through these uh earlier this week because they're a bit of a mouthful hey i found a cool dave markey quote about that the the rivalry yeah clearly Double Nickels was an answer to Zen Arcade. No other SST band was going to follow suit with a double LP. If anyone could match it, could match it and probably upstage it, it would be the Minutemen. No doubt about that. And I will say, I mean, again, Zen Arcade is not my favorite Husker record. I, I like Double Nickels better than Zen Arcade. I like Double Nickels, though, like on par with my favorite Husker records like Flip Your Wig and New Day Rising. It also Easily. it also did really well. They pressed up apparently oh. 10,000 copies for the initial run, and by the end of 84, it had sold 15,000 copies, which is yeah. very impressive for an indie release. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. And I'm sure SST records that are still selling today, it's got to be, you know, obviously the Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth and all that kind of stuff, but I bet you uh, Husker, the Minutemen, and Black Flag have got to be the top three, right? Yeah, well, Minutemen and, or, uh, sorry, Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth aren't on the label anymore, so... Oh, yeah, that's right. All that yeah. stuff has been re-released. Okay, so here we go. Side one. Quote, Arena Rock is the new wave. And there's there's tons of info on the labels here. We don't need to go all that, but there's Side D and Side Mike, obviously. The B-side has got the very famous Minutemen San Pedro anchor. Yep. I don't know if that's the first place it is, but it's one of the most iconic versions of it anyways. The run groove here is punk rock is the new nostalgia. Side three says, quote, dance rock is the new pasture. All right. And then side four says chump rock is the new cool. And the label on side four, maximum speed, double nickels. All right, ballot result. I can't wait to see where this goes. (laughs) (laughs) You want to talk about a rivalry? Yeah. Ballot result. Okay, why don't you hit me with yours first? I have a sneaking suspicion I might know what yours is, actually. From like a, dis- a conversation you and I had like 20 years ago. Well, I don't know if I have one. I I wrote down my favorites. Can I list all my favorites? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm I'm curious to see whether this song I'm thinking of is on it. So go for it. Anxious Mofo, Vietnam. Do you want new wave or do you want the truth? Shit from an old notebook. One reporter's opinion. Political song for Michael Jackson to sing. History lesson part two. Oh, and themselves. I really like that song. That's the one. Yeah, about twenty years about twenty years ago or so, maybe even longer. I remember just talking about the Minuteman and D Boone and stuff like that with you, and that's the song you mentioned to me. You know, I've been a working class guy since I was eighteen years old, so I love. I really like. I'm a union man, you know, so I really like the working class stuff. Like one of my favorite Minuteman songs is uh, is that song uh, Courage. I know it's not about about uh working so much but i mean it's a a similar sentiment to me no definitely i guess the other the song we probably should mention too it's hard not to is corona 
Yeah. Which which was uh, made famous by that movie or TV show Jackass. It was kind of their theme song. And I mean, as a life like well, not a lifelong, but I feel like a lifelong Minuteman fan. I was actually kind of like choked when that song was used by Jackass, but I've gotten over that because I figure hopefully um, the Watt and Boone and Hurley families have gotten some money off of that and that's all good with me. Yeah. So I was actually thinking about what would be like the bet, like, you know, my ballot result. There's just so many songs. I was kind of actually hoping you would feel pretty strongly about one. But um, I would probably, if I had to narrow it down, it would probably be, it almost have to be either Anxious Mofo or History Lesson Part 2. Yeah. So I don't know, you want to break the tie? Anxious Mofo, that's serious as a heart attack, right? Yeah. I don't know, I think maybe we should go with History Lesson Part 2. I seem to recall Michael really liking that one as well. Yeah. We'll call, I, that, well, the, I'll, call that the tiebreaker. I would lean towards it, like, after hearing that too. And I like Michael's comment about how it's really relatable because, I mean, I haven't written a song for a long time, but people who grew up with this kind of music, you know, can pro- can really relate to the sentiment of that song, being inspired and wanting to do it yourself. That's, that's, the, po- that's, that's the point of the song. I, no, I, I, know. I wrote down a Mike Watt quote about it because I really like this quote. He said, I wrote History Lesson Part 2 to try to humanize us. People thought we were spacemen. But we were just Pedro Corn Dogs. You could be us. This could be you. We're not that much different from you, cats. He just said exactly what I wanted to say. Yeah. That's ex- that's it. I mean, I could write a song like this, and it would have different bands in it. It would it would have the Minutemen in it, right? Yeah. And um, that's why I think it's it's got to be the ballot result. Yeah. All right. That's it. Thank you, um, everyone, for doing the double hit. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to our guests, Paul Hilkoff and Michael T. Fournier. Ryan, what's next? Oh, man. This is my go-to Black Flag album. It's Slip It In Time. Can't wait for that one. Thanks for listening, everybody. 